there. Welcome to the Inclusion Solution Live podcast from the Winters Group. Um, on this season of our podcast, we'll be taking a deeper intentional dive into the chapters of the Winters Group's new book, Racial Justice at Work, Practical Solutions for Systemic Change. I'm Gabby Gonzalez. I'm the marketing and PR strategist um, here at the Winters Group, and I am with Mary Frances Winters live. She is our founder and CEO. Mary Frances, you want to take it away? Thank you so much. And it's great to be co-hosting um, these episodes with you, with you, Gabby. I'm so excited to be able to do that. So 2020 happened. It was a pandemic. George Floyd was murdered. And it seemed that the world had this reawakening that racism continues to exist in, in our society. I will tell you that it was really shocking to me that people didn't already know that racism still exists. Anyway, we had this so-called reckoning, and I wondered at the time if this was going to be a new movement. I was hopeful there was going to be a new movement. And then I thought, well, maybe it's only a moment. And now I'm thinking that maybe it's only a memory, because what we're seeing is those organizations that said that they were going to prioritize racial justice in their in their work in the workplace have kind of waned on that. They, they're kind of backsliding a little bit. Other priorities are coming in. Um, there's a lot of discussion about terms that they don't like and that make people feel uncomfortable. And that's what we're going to be talking about, uh, about today. So here we are in 2023, and we're going to be talking not only about that today, but we're going to be talking about this throughout the podcast series, the resistance that we're, that we're getting um, to this work. But what we want to do is we want to continue to lift up racial justice. We wanna to continue to give you strategies and actions and ways to think about this work in your workplace so that we can not have this be a memory and so that this continues to be something that is lifted up in, uh, in the workplace because there's still a lot of work to be done. And our book, Racial Justice at Work, gives you practical solutions. And these podcasts are an opportunity for you to hear from the authors and for you to hear what some of these solutions are that go beyond human resources, because typically this work has been related to and confined for human resources. But we're going beyond that because we're talking about systems. We're talking about um, interrelated systems. And so we're happy to have you here. Uh, we hope that you enjoy this series and we hope that you're able to get some things that you can actually take back and implement immediately in the workplace. Now, keep in mind, our solutions are not your garden variety solutions. Our solutions are not those that um, we've done before because what we've done before hasn't worked. Now, we believe if we do what we've always done, we're going to get what we've always gotten. So some of our solutions may seem far out. Some of our solutions may seem radical. And some may say, that would never work in my organization. But what we want you to try to do is to reimagine, reimagine how you might be able to make these work. So welcome. And we're so happy to have you with us. That's fantastic. Also, just wanted to lift up, you know, the focus is on racial justice. Um, could you define that for us? Um, yes. Yeah. So I want to define justice as, you know, so in the organizations, so I've been doing this work now for a long time, as many of you know, and we started with diversity, and that meant looking at differences and similarities, and then we went to inclusion, which meant we can have the diversity, but that doesn't mean that we're including people in the organization and making people feel valued and welcomed uh, for their differences. And then we went to equity, so now we've got DEI, 
Um, and the equity was to recognize that equality was not enough because equality suggests we're going to treat everybody the same, whereas equity suggests we're going to differentiate and understand that different um, groups have had different experiences and we're going to better understand those experiences through being more culturally competent, understanding the history of, of organizations. Justice, DEIJ or JEDI to some organizations, J-E-D-I, uh, recognizes um, that justice takes equity one step further. So justice is about correcting harm. And that's a hard one for people to embrace. And what we propose in the book or posit in the book is that even those organizations that have put the J in their acronym, they really don't know how to implement justice and they're getting a lot of pushback in, in doing so. And so justice is about correcting harm, correcting past harm. And if some of you think, well, that sounds like reparations. Yes, maybe so. And we have a chapter you know, on, on reparations. That sounds like treating people differently um, and giving people pre preferential treatment. That might be how you interpret it. But when we talk about correcting harm, there's no way that we're gonna get, get to a place of equity unless we think about that past harm. Excellent, okay. Um, thank you for Setting, that, setting us straight with that. I'm gonna go ahead and start off with some check-ins. We have our guests here with us. Um, we've got Megan Larson, hello, hello, and Lee Morrison. Um, both my colleagues at the Winters Group, I'll let them introduce themselves. Um, but let's just start off how we normally do at the Winters Group with, with a check-in. Um, how are we checking in today? Mary Frances, I'm gonna make you start. <laughs> You're gonna make me start? Oh, okay. <laughs> Well, that's just fine because I am checking in super fantastic. I'm doing well today. Um, it happens to be a Friday and uh, I am doing well um, on this day. But even if we're Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, I'm, I'm sure because um, I try to keep a, an upbeat spirit, even in the wake of um, some of the atrocities that are going on in our in our society. But I'm checking in well. And I'm checking in well because I'm with you all. Lee, do you want to check in? I can check in. Yes, thank you. Uh, I am checking in today. I'm feeling tired. Um, certainly at the end of a week, I've been traveling. Um, I have uh, been working on a lot of things this week that uh, I'm excited about. And uh, I'm grateful to have this time uh, again with our team members to just kind of pause and take a, a a step back and think about uh, some of these bigger themes at play in our work. Uh, I always find that energizing. So uh, thank you so much. Yeah, Lee, what do you do at the Winters Group? Sorry, because I didn't. <laughs> thank you, Gabby. Um, I am a manager of learning and innovation here at the Winters Group. Uh, so I partner with our clients, with our consultants uh, and facilitators to design uh, learning experiences for our uh, client partners uh, as it relates to equity, justice, anti-racism, uh, and also work a lot with our internal team uh, on just creating some resources to support us in um, our work that we do together. Uh, also thinking about um, consensus among our consultants about uh, Winters Group approaches and uh, philosophies as it relates to this work. So uh, yeah, just very excited to bring insights from all of that into our conversation today. We are lucky to have you. 
I'm going to double tap on what Lee said. I, I'm, my name is Megan Larson. I am the vice president of marketing and, and business development at the Winters Group. I'm checking in also really excited to be able to be in community with you all today and really take a step back and pause. So we are, we work so hard pushing all this new content out and finding ways to help people, you know, transform their organizations. And I love the fact that we're taking the opportunity to step back and talk about how we do that because that's really important. Um, and it's just another way to sort of get that message out there and be able to help support people through this really challenging work. So that's very exciting. Um, my role within the organization is I get to do all the fun stuff, marketing and advertising and, and talking to new clients. That's the fun stuff. We get to launch. We're launching a new summit that's happening uh, in February. We are that actually is talking about all the concepts throughout this book. We uh, launched a new um, BIPOC focused leadership development program called the Empowerment Institute. Next year, we're, we're launching additional uh BIC 2.0, where people can get even into more granular detail about how to have bold, inclusive conversations. Like, this is what gives me energy. Talking to people and, and pulling out uh, content like this every day is so, um, that's what I do. And you're still doing it. Look at her marketing. I'm like, okay. <laughs> well, I'm checking in. I wanted to go last because, um, you know, I'm getting a little over a little something that my, I have a toddler. And he's always picking up these little illnesses and coughs from um, preschool. So um, if you hear me uh, coughing or sipping, that's just going to happen. So <laughs> that's how I'm checking in today. Thank you, everybody. So this episode is dedicated to chapter two of the book, um, which was written by Mary Frances. Um, it is chapter two, the minimization, weaponization, and demonization of racial justice concepts. So with that... We would love to hear, Mary Frances, your why for this chapter, because it actually was not on the original lineup of chapters, right? It's something you felt very strongly about, though, that you're like, we have to include this. So if you could tell us a little bit more about your why. Yeah, Gabby, thank you. Absolutely. So it wasn't on the original lineup. Uh, and as we were writing the book, because many of you may, may know that it takes almost a year to publish a book. And as we were writing the book, things kept happening in our environment. Uh, you know, uh, we kept hearing about uh, critical race theory. We were hearing about the great replacement theory. We were hearing about white supremacy culture. And we were hearing about these terms um, in ways that we knew were not accurate. So let me give you, uh, let me give you an example. So this is the impetus for that chapter. I was listening to a news um, uh, broadcast and the reporter was a roving reporter and he was going around and with asking people. So he asked this gentleman and he said to the gentleman, he said, um, so uh, what do you think about critical race theory? And the guy said, oh, horrible. We need to ban critical race theory. So then the reporter says to him, do you know what critical race theory is? And he said, no, I really don't know what it is. He said, but I just know that it's, you know, it's, it's, it's really bad. So I just like, I laughed, but it was one of those like incredulous laughs. Like, I, I don't believe that this person would even put themselves, uh, you know, in a situation where they would say, I don't like it, but I don't know what it is. And so that was the impetus for the chapter because so many people don't know what these terms really mean and they have an interpretation of them 
that is uh, just wrong. I mean, I don't even say it's one-sided. It's just, it's just wrong. You know, if we take, um, take like critical race theory, I was listening to um, Kimberly Crenshaw, uh, who is uh, actually uh, is um, accredited with coining that term, mm -hmm. uh, critical race theory. And she was on, I believe it was Joy Reid on MSNBC. And she said, critical race theory is not even a thing. She said, it's a way to talk about a thing. <laughs> and she said, what, what they discovered, and she's a lawyer. So she said, in law schools, what they were looking at was all of the legislation that had been passed in the 60s and the 70s, all of the anti-discrimination legislation, all of the equal, equal employment legislation on the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And they were wondering in the late 70s and early 80s, where we are with this and why we have not made more progress. So it was a way to examine why we haven't made the, the progress. And it's not something that was ever taught in K through 12. Um, it was something in law schools, but it has become so um, weaponized and demonized that it's um, considered something that is, is, is evil. And as we know, the politicians you know, took that soundbite, if you will, or that term, and just made it and, and, just, and just completely weaponized it. The other term was white supremacy culture that I write about in the chapter as well. And my why for that is that I was doing some work with a client where they said they wanted to do anti-racism education. And if you do anti-racism education, you really can't do anti-racism education without talking about white supremacy culture, which is different than calling somebody a white supremacist, right? Which, which people don't understand either. So in this session, which went downhill because people felt attacked, they said, because as I was trying to explain what, the, what it meant, what white supremacy culture meant, it is, it is a, a culture, an environment where the ways of being, doing, knowing of white people are considered superior to the ways and being, knowing and doing of any other group. We see it in colonization. We see it in you know, white privilege. We see it playing out you know, in so many places. However, the backlash and the resistance, and we do have chapters on resistance and we're gonna do some podcasts on resistance, which you'll hear um, uh, throughout our series, uh, was so great that we had to change the terminology for clients in order to keep the bits to keep that keep that client so it's like do we want to be right or do we want to be effective to be able to continue to work with with that client so then we started to use dominant culture uh, as opposed to white um, you know white supremacy culture so in chapter two i try to explain um the difference define the difference in some of these terms like critical race theory white supremacy culture the great replacement theory um and it's i think it's just really um you know, really critical for those of us who really do care about justice to first of all, know what we're talking about when we talk about these terms. So that is my why uh, for, uh, for, writing, for, writing the, uh, for writing the chapter to, so to speak, um, set the record straight because it's so frustrating to continue to hear the demonization and weaponization uh, of, ter of terms. Now, I talk about minimization of terms too, because sometimes we just minimize from the perspective of just like making it not 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 that important, right? Well, that happened a long time ago. Why are we still talking about those those kinds of things? And so we um, tend to minimize. So that's why I wrote the chapter. And I know that um, you know our chapters in this book are you know interrelated, inter interwoven. And I know that um, Megan and Lee um, 
you know, in their chapters um, also can relate to um, this weaponization and demonization because it, it's happening, you know, throughout our work in, in many different uh, in many different ways. So I know that Lee wants to to chime in here. I've probably gone on a little bit too long, but I'm passionate about that. So. <laughs> so. No, there's so much to say. Absolutely. Thank you, Mary Frances. Uh, so yeah, I would plus one everything that Mary Frances just shared. Uh, I think critical race theory in particular has been very effectively demonized uh, in kind of our cultural rhetoric recently. Uh, when I think about you know, the history that most of us learned in school about injustices uh, perpetuated by uh, the founders of our nation, um, perpetuated by those who held power throughout history. Uh, all of that just feels to me very woefully inadequate. I, uh, <laughs> I think about my own learning and yes, I learned about slavery. I learned about uh, colonization. But it was all kind of in in the past um and it also i think like a level that was missing for me was like empathy really thinking about like what would it have been like to every single day live and as an enslaved person like on a human level that was something i was never challenged to think about in school let alone how it connected to um, some of the injustices that continue to play out um and so that's why i find uh, it's very exciting as we're starting to recognize uh, that this history has contributed to all of these misunderstandings, um, lack of ability to bring empathy to other people's perspectives. I see a lot of potential in how can we shift what is in curriculum. Uh, I think everyone here knows that I'm very passionate about how can we be having these conversations with young people, with children, um, so that we can start this early on and we don't have to do all of this unlearning that again, is the essence of the work that we do here at the Winters Group. Um, and so I find the, the spanning of books and literature and uh, what we're gonna talk about in curriculum to be deeply disturbing. Um, and uh, I see this concept of woke culture being demonized, this backlash. Uh, I'm like, no, these are all things that can help bring us to a better place uh, where all of us can live um, in less fear and um, just in more collaborative, uh, thoughtful, caring ways with one another. Um, and I think about, I'm really glad Mary Frances mentioned uh, Kimberly Crenshaw. So I had the opportunity uh, last summer to attend Kimberly Crenshaw's uh, African-American Policy Forum's Critical Race Theory Summer School uh, through the Winters Group. And uh, something that I really, uh, took from that. Uh, C.J. Hunt is a filmmaker and I attended one of his sessions and he was sharing just his perspective that, you know, conservative commentators have been really good at creating these scary, short, zippy, impactful terms that can just spread like wildfire, um, even when people don't understand what they mean. So uh, he gave the example of welfare queens, Obamacare. Um, thinking back to 2011, uh, I remember there was this act that was introduced um, an effort to undermine the uh, Affordable Care Act, and it was called uh, Repealing the Job-Killing Health Care Act. And I just think about that, you know, over a decade later, here we are, and we see um, that type of rhetoric being brought into uh, all of this political language, policy focused language, um, Stop Woke with uh, Ron DeSantis in Florida recently, the Stop Woke Act. 
Um, and, you know, I think about the Job Killing Healthcare Act. What about the people killing lack of healthcare coverage? Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so that, that to me is very frustrating. Um, and I see how, you know, it sows fear, it sows division between people. Um, people recognizing that, you know, the approaches that we have to wanting to maintain this uh, power structure may not be supported by a majority of people. And so the best defense that they have against that is scaring people into supporting their platforms. Um, so something that CJ Hunt offered that I really appreciated was how do we as progressive thinkers get better at um, sprint language, these like zippy little terms, um, as opposed to we're all very good at writing books, we're all very good at uh, <laughs> long form communication, but uh, ultimately that's failing to uh, reach this critical mass of people. Um, another example that comes to mind for me is affirmative action. I always see this referred to uh, by opponents as this is reverse racism, as opposed to actually we're addressing this historical and persistent overrepresentation of white people in spaces that continues to cause problems for everyone. Uh, we're not having perspectives of other voices in the room and we make mistakes and suddenly it's a lawsuit. Um, and so uh, I think it's always just so important also to lift up that white women have been the greatest beneficiaries of affirmative action. Um, mm -hmm. And that continues to be true to this day. So um, thinking about what are the narratives underlying this uh, that are attacking things like this. And then just one more example that comes to mind, uh, thinking about the need to redistribute our resources and how we are allocating resources um, in service of equity and justice. So I think of, uh, there was a time Mary Frances and I were in a room with uh, senior leadership at a nonprofit organization. And Mary Frances offered to uh, the group, you know, what I'm hearing from younger people is that we need to be paying people in these employee resource groups, paying uh, people from historically marginalized groups who are putting in this extra uncompensated labor. Um, and one of the leaders in the room said, I don't understand that because why would we be paying people when we're giving them opportunities? And that to me was just very illustrative of, wow, they're really seeing this in such a paternalistic way of uh, we're giving people opportunities. This is a development opportunity as opposed to seeing those insights and uh, that wisdom from lived experiences that uh, marginalized people can bring to the table to help organizational leaders uh, better understand what they are navigating. Mm -hmm. um, so still there's this fear of redistributing resources, of transparency, of feedback from employees. Uh, and all of these things are gonna have to be things that we get more comfortable sitting in discomfort with um, in service of moving forward. So. Oh, that's and that's what you and that's what you write about in your chapter called one of your chapters called a radical shift in consciousness. So you've just given us some really good insights about how we need to shift that consciousness. So yeah, thanks, thanks so much for that. She has, and I have to say um, that it also brings to mind one of your other chapters, the one that you wrote with instructional designer Tammy Jackson on reparations, because you're talking about redistributing wealth, and that's definitely a hot topic term, for sure. Uh, that's been demonized, this idea of reparations. And, and we'll talk more about that chapter, chapter in another episode. But um, yes, we'll go ahead and, and let's uh, move over to Megan's box. Hello, Megan. Hello. <laughs> yeah, marketing and advertising is all about words, right? I mean, that words and images. And it's really easy to fall down into that trap of, of being 
having their words be weaponized, whether, you know, for good or ill, right? So one of the things I write about my chapters, the gatekeepers, the people who create this narrative, and they are the ones that own the definition of these terms are the ones that are holding on to the power. If you can take a word like reparations or CRT, right? That, that mm -hmm. as Mary Frances said, it's not a thing. It's a way to talk about a thing. But if you can change that narrative and change that definition and something that is negative or that could have like create fear or inspire anxiety, then you have the power. You're maintaining the power of that conversation and you're not letting that conversation move forward. You're not letting change happen. You are holding on to that power. So, and I know Mary Frances was talking about that idea of, of the term white supremacy culture. I know we've talked with clients before or, and just the word justice can be triggering. Even the word triggering has been weaponized. Mm -hmm. I mean, all of these words, it's just, it's fatiguing to mm -hmm. use another term from Mary Frances Winters that has also been uh, weaponized. Um, Megan Ellinghausen manages our social media and was very integral in helping to market Black Fatigue, Mary Frances's previous book. And when the term Black Fatigue started to trend, it got taken over by white Twitter users to talk about how they are fatigued about having this conversation about race. And they were trying to co-opt that term and make it trend in a negative way. Uh, so it's it's hard. It's it's like this constant vigilance and this repetition of saying, no, we are going to align on what this term means and we're not going to let you change this language in a way. We are, we are going to take back that power and control some of that narrative. I mean, our social media gets shadow banned all the time and this is something that you don't have any control over. You don't even get notified. If we use terms like dismantle, anti-racist, white supremacy, white fragility, reparations, decolonize, all of that will get us shadow banned. So our posts will not be shown as much. Our audience will shrink. We will not have as much engagement or interaction with our post. And it, it's not something that we could do anything about. We have no control because it's built into the algorithms. And this happens all the time with different social media companies. Uh, the Markup is a nonprofit newsroom investigating how tech is used in society. And you can have terms like white lives matter and white power still be used and not blocked, but black lives matter and black power are blocked phrases. So there's even black is beautiful, black liberation, civil rights can get you shadow banned. This is an amazing point in society, right? If we're trying to market and we're trying to get these concepts across and it I know that there's a lot of different ways to interpret and look at language, but then there is also reality and the truth and people's lived experience. And you can't ban people's lived, I mean, clearly you can, but part of our responsibility as embedding justice in the work that we do in marketing and advertising is to call out that when this is being controlled, who are these people that are trying to control the narrative and how can we fight back and make sure that these terms are being used 
to reflect reality, to reflect people's lived experiences, and to reflect the truth of them. Yeah, that is so key, you know, about reflecting the truth, because there are so many lies. And Lee, when you mentioned about um, schools and the banning of uh, literature in the schools and what you learned in school, right? The So the weaponization and demonization and minimization of terms is also um, the... Um, like elimination, <laughs> the elimination of terms, right? I should have talked about that in the movie. We just, just eliminate them. We don't, we don't eat by, um, by just not including them in, in, the, in the books or um, by saying that this term is, and we know that there's, there's legislation in many states to do just that. Um, I, a friend of mine um, sent me something. She sent me a screenshot of something from her television. She lives in um, Little Rock, Arkansas, but this was a school district just outside of Little Rock, Arkansas, and there were 80 terms that the school board was um, contemplating banning, cannot say these words. And the first one on the list was diversity. Mm -hmm. The second one on the list was race. The third one on the list was racism. The fourth one on the list was LGBTQ. All of these terms were up. I don't know if, I don't know if it passed, but all of these terms were up for, uh, for a vote that you cannot say these terms. There's a very uh, large um, entity that everyone would know, and I'm not going to name them, um, that is asking me to do a keynote speech. And they've already said that I cannot say unconscious bias and I cannot say um, I cannot say colorblindness because mm -hmm. that would make people un uncomfortable. I thought unconscious bias was one of those terms that had become pretty, <laughs> right. pretty normalized, right, Gabby? That's right? the approachable entry point for a lot right. of people. Exactly. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> I'm like, why do they ask you? <laughs> well, sorry. all of this is resonating with me just because, you know, like that term CRT, it is so weaponized that I live in New York City, which is a very diverse city. But even in my son's school, um, it's become an issue where, you know, just a handful of parents were concerned about CRT, and then all of a sudden here, this book is no longer being taught in class. So, and, and that was for like for fourth grade, but um, yeah, so definitely an important conversation to keep having. Now, even better would be if people read that chapter and <laughs> when they read that chapter, what is it that you're hoping, Mary Frances, that they will walk away with? I'm hoping that um, people will walk away um, with curiosity that they will not believe everything that they see here and read in the in, in the media. That they will go. That they will dig deeper. Um, you know, when somebody says um, we're going to ban wokeness, right? So then, what? What? So if you don't have wokeness, what do you have? Asleep, being asleep. You know, and so to to think about that critically, right? So I, I'm hoping that it will raise people's consciousness to think about, you know, what is the reason for. Um, wanting to ban and weaponize and demonize these terms, having them think about, because with a justice orientation, we ask people to think about who benefits from this, you know, whatever it might be, this policy, this practice, and who is harmed by this. And so I, I would want people to think about that. Why, um, are, why, are, why is there a movement to try to ban this concept or to advance this kind of of, of negative, uh, hateful, harmful rhetoric. What you know? Who benefits from that, and who is harmed? Because justice, in the end, benefits all of us. And so, to the extent that 
we're supporting and helping and mitigating uh, racism from uh, historically marginalized groups, everybody, everybody benefits because the more knowledgeable they are, the more we do understand our history, the more we recognize our complicity with it, the more we can recognize um, um, how, how we can support, um, you know, ameliorating some of these uh, kinds of uh, systems. Because again, you know, if we're paying people equity, we're paying all people equity, right? If we're removing barriers for one group, it removes barriers um, for everyone. And this idea, the other thing that I would hope people would, would get from, from this chapter is more of a notion of abundance rather than scarcity. You know, the, the idea that when we restrict, when we limit anything, you know, it's coming from this place of, of fear and coming from a place of scarcity that um, if they get that, then somebody's taking something away uh, from me. And, mm -hmm. um, and Lee talks about, you know, a radical shift in consciousness. One of that, one of that, the shift in consciousness needs to be this notion that we are all uh, moving uh, forward and we're all helped when we think about the world more from an abundance. Um, how can we support each other? Lee talked about empathy. You know, how can we um, look at each other and our humanity as opposed to looking at it as scarcity. You know, I think about immigration in, in, you know, in that regard and how that term in and of itself and how that's been described, right? Those people trying to um, trying to uh, come, into, uh, come into our country. So that's what I would hope that they would get. I hope that they would get a curiosity. I hope it would make them think um, about the motivation for wanting to weaponize and demonize the, the terms and who is hurt and who is, who's harmed and who, is, and who benefits. Oh, that was a nice, nice summary. But they're still going to have to go get the book to see the rest. So, um, well, Lee and Megan, Mary Frances, and I do have a question that we want to want to make sure we ask every guest um, because this work it can it can be very fatiguing to Megan's point. Um, so, what tools do you use to fill your cup? Like, in other words, like how do you take care of yourself to make sure, like, to ensure that this work is sustainable? Lee, what are some of your tools? Yeah, I really appreciate this question. Thank you, Gabby. Uh, I think, you know, I've been at the Winters Group for four years now, and uh, there is never a dull moment. Uh, there is never a week without uh, some kind of uh, big emotional uh, something that comes up, uh, whether in a client session or in communication uh, preparation for sessions where, you know, we're told, <laughs> we don't want you using this word. Um, and it really undermines uh, the value of this work. And so uh, a few things that have been really helpful to me. So uh, I've been really leaning into more of uh, an understanding of the connection between uh, somatics and anxiety and wellness. You know, mm -hmm. I am a very anxious person and uh, I care a lot about the work that I do and uh, understanding even, you know, in working in therapy, um, understanding, you know, what is coming up in my body? What am I feeling uh, as, you know, I'm experiencing discomfort in this moment? Uh, what is, what does anxiety feel like as it's building for me? What can I do to disrupt those processes? Um, maybe it's taking a walk, uh, even if I feel like I have a million things on my plate, you know, just set everything aside for 10 minutes, go outside, breathe some fresh air. Um, <laughs> Marisha Reese on our team um, has offered breaks save lives, and I truly believe that. Um, I think the more that I have been intentional about working them into my day, the more benefit I have seen from that. Um, also, just not holding the weight of the world on our shoulders, recognizing what is within our sphere of influence, uh, what may not be currently, 
what could be if we work with others or shift things. Um, and just experiencing clarity around that, I think, has been really, really helpful to uh, sustain sustainability in this work for me. Um, and thinking about, uh, as it relates to uh, the sphere of influence also, um, you know, understanding, and I've had some good conversations with Mary Frances after some of these very emotionally charged sessions, uh, you know, there were a lot of problems in this group before we came in. You know, uh -huh. three three hour sessions with this group was not going to get to the root of their problems. And if this session, if this um, knowledge, if this discussion that we invited people to engage in has helped one person, that is a triumph. Um, thinking about, you know, what what was uh, perhaps the lack of investment coming from the organization um, that was undermining this work the whole time? Um, and, you know, really thinking about how can we be more intentional about partnering with people who understand that this is a longer term commitment, understand that, uh, you know, a few check the box sessions are not going to change culture. Um, and if that's what they can afford to contract, you know, we can set expectations around what is realistic to um, be able to expect at the end of that journey um, and what may take some additional investment. Um, and so I think all of that and, you know, just giving ourselves grace at the end of the day. This is really, really difficult work. And so many people um, in organizations are looking for just the silver bullet to uh, address these problems. And, you know, they may not even know what they need in order to okay. get to that point. They're hoping that, oh, if we contract this keynote, this session, uh, that'll address these problems. Um, and just understanding that, you know, even if we take a very healing focused uh, restorative practice approach to this, these are very complex issues that um, are very personal to people's lived experiences. Everyone's going to see th these things differently. Um, and that's natural. That's part of the joy of this work. Um, but uh, yeah, I think really just uh, leaning into some of those reframes has been really helpful to me um, and just being realistic with myself about my capacity and when I need to rest. <laughs> Great advice. Megan Larson, how about you? <laughs> I think, I, I mean, everyone has said it, this work, this work can be incredibly stressful. I know, you know, especially with social media, we are not immune to all of the comments and, and hate speech that's on there. Megan Ellinghausen manages our social media beautifully. So un unfortunately she, she sees the brunt of them, but sometimes they slip through and it is jarring. I mean, it's painful. It's scary. And, and, I know Lee, Lee mentioned somatics. I, I'm looking into somatics a lot too, of like, where, where are you holding this trauma? Where, how does that show up in your body? How does it show up and how you present yourself in the space? Um, so that's something I'm looking at. Honestly, I read, I'd like disengage <laughs> and get myself uh -huh. 10 minutes. I'm gonna go put myself in a fantasy world that is nothing like my reality. And I know everything is okay at the end of the day. And then I can come back and it gives me time to recharge. Like I'm in somebody else's head for a little bit. Now I can come back in mine because mine is kind of freed. Um, so I'm a bookworm. I'm a little bit of a nerd. And that's <laughs> one of my main coping mechanisms. All right, Mary Frances, I'm gonna let you close this out. 
because I feel a cough coming on. <laughs> okay. Well, we thank you so much for being with us um, today. Thank you, um, Gabby, for um, being here, even though uh, you are um, suffering with your upper respiratory um, issues today. So I really appreciate that. Thank you for being here. Lee, um, it's always a, a pleasure, the insights that you bring. And um, Megan, um, can't say enough about all that you're doing uh, in the marketing space for the for the Winters Group so that our voices are, are heard and so that we are um, out there being able to share a different narrative than what we're hearing with the weaponization, the demonization of terms. So thank you so very much for, uh, for, being, uh, for being with us uh, today. And until next time, I would offer all of you to reimagine justice at work. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you.